Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. I've been looking at the books that I was obsessed with back in the 80s. Thanks to this wonderful book, Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix, which chronicles the phenomena of the horror boom of the 70s and 80s, celebrating the lurid tales and fittingly horrific covers. Here on my right is my great library of RPGs. If I swivel a bit to a six o'clock position, there's another set of shelves with game books in a paperback format. Uh, Fighting Fantasy, Grail Quest, Lone Wolf, amongst others, and the topic of this podcast, Dragon Warriors. If I spin back to the left, avoiding being tangled in wire under my desk, Here is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll uh, I'll just give it a little tap. Ah, yes. The eternal champion has appeared once again as Carla from Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. A story of adventure and the supernatural in the English countryside. A perfect embodiment of Dragon Warriors. It was originally conceived as a 12-volume series. Dragon Warriors was released by Transworld through their imprint Corgi Books between 1985 and 1986. Six volumes were published, and what made them special is how they built up, book by book, to create a complete role-playing game, with all the rules you'll need and the game world legend. Over on Twitter... There's a hashtag that's developed recently that tags B-O-S-R, British Old School Revival, Renaissance, Reginald or whatever, identifying the distinctive look and feel of RPG material developed in the 80s through White Dwarf, Citadel Miniatures and Imagine Magazine. It's the distinction that designer and publisher Newport identifies in his D101 games, such as Open Quest and Crips and things. Dragon Warriors and its world of legend belongs to this BOSR. It's less gritty and putrid than the old world of Warhammer. It's more suggestive than the richly detailed Pelennor from Imagine, and it's more focused than titan the fighting fantasy world as a game it's something of a paradox on the one hand this is a d20 system that revolves around a few simple resolution mechanics however it's not as abstract as D&D in its derivatives it's more grounded in a authentic simulation suggested by a game such as runequest as a setting It's not bloated by a cosmology and intricate details, but it is rich and distinctively steeped in folklore and myth. There's nothing superficial about 
the world of legend, there's a real sense of place, grounded in the history and myths from the British Isles and beyond. Six volumes were actually published. There were some spin-off game books in the same setting, known as Bloodsword. But the Dragon Warriors game ended with the setting book Lands of Legends, with great illustrations by Russ Nicholson and maps by Jeff Wingate of TSR fame. Each book includes an adventure and expands the rules with additional features, spells, items and monsters. Book 1 includes combat, weapons, the classes of knight and barbarian. Book 2 introduces spells, potions and devices of the mystic and sorcerer. The third book is a series of adventures that form a mini-campaign to recover the elven crystals. I've recently run the introductory adventure, Goblin Grim, which has enough material for several sessions. Old school tricks, traps and mysteries, and an introduction to the strangeness of this haunted world. The fourth book is probably my favourite, Out of the Shadows, introduces assassins and how to run adventures at a greater rank. But the additional monsters that adds to the bestiary are just fantastical and are wonderful and it's what puts this game in a special place for me. The fifth book is a more complex campaign book and introduces the Elementalist class and the sixth book introduces the Warlock as well as expanding the world. In this grog pod, we talked to Dave Morris, who, along with Oliver Johnson, created the game. And we speak to him about Jewel Spider, the latest game that he's developing within the world of legend. He was a prolific contributor to White Dwarf. He was the editor of the Rune Rights column and writer of some of the most memorable articles and scenarios published in the magazine. Fellow armchair adventurer at Daily Dwarf from Twitter gives a survey of this material in an essay that he's written and I'll read. Grog Squadder Dave Patterson organises a meet-up in Tembe known as Grog 10 and he's provided a first, last and everything with a very British old-school flavour. Listen out for his new podcast, Frankenstein's RPG, that he'll be the host of, where element by element... The perfect RPG will be created. Until then, it gives a very droll reflection on the first game he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him, but not necessarily in that order. Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, is in the Zoom of role-playing rambling, looking at the rules and our general feelings towards the game that we played 30-odd years ago and rediscovering it now as we've been playing it again recently. I'll be back at the end to point you towards where you can find out more about Dragon Warriors. But for now, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. However, gaming of the past has influenced our gaming today, and I'm joined in the room of role-playing rambling by Dave Morris. Hello there, Dave. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. I've got to ask the question that we always ask, so how did you get involved in uh, in the hobby? What was, what was your first game that you played? The first game was Empire of the Petal Throne, 
this would have been, I think I'd left school, but we were still, we still used to go back and hang around school because it was the best place to, you know, sixth form common room was the best place to get together for gaming. And I went up to town with a bunch of wargaming friends and we went to Game Centre, which used to be this tiny little shop on Hanway Street in London. It was so small that if you wanted to fold out one of the maps from a game, you have to ask the other customers to go into the street and lay it out on the floor. And somebody found this thing, Empire of the Petal Throne, and and we all decided to club together because it was really quite expensive, like 15 quid, you know, it's a lot back then. And then we're sitting on the train coming back and a friend of mine was reading it and he goes, I don't think you, you just play one person in this game. And I was going, well, how does that work? Although a little bit of me kind of thought, well, that sounds good because I always liked in games those little character touches. So we'd never, we had no idea what role-playing was at all. And we got back and there were a bunch of us who'd clubbed together and we sat down on a Saturday morning and the guy who'd agreed to volunteer to, to GM it said, all right, well, I'll, I'll see you like one at a time for 15 minutes and we'll rotate like that. And we all go up to him and do our little 15 minutes of role-playing because in Empire of the Petal Throne, you you arrive in Jakarta Harbour on a little boat and you get out and immediately it's got a structure like you've got to go to the foreigner's quarter and you can get a job. And So we'd all be doing that. Then two guys got together and they said, we'll team up. Then we get twice the playing time. So after a bit, we gradually thought, well, yeah, if we were all a team, we'd play all morning rather than just getting our 15 minute slot. So we had no idea that that's how you were supposed to play. We had to we evolve that thinking, as it were. And, and it's it, Empire of the Petal Throne passed me by, um, but it still has an enduring appeal. I keep meeting people who uh, are still fascinated with it. What is it about the game that um, oh. still holds your attention? I suppose. I mean, there's still, I can feel the tingle of wonder. You know, you get off that little boat in Jakarta Harbour and you're just a barbarian. And it's quite clever because Tecamel has this very complex sort of social code and all the rest of it but you don't need to know any of that when you start because you literally just got off a boat and you're shunted off and you're told that's the bit of the city you're allowed in don't go anywhere else or you might get you know impaled for you know insulting a noble or something and then you get jobs and you gradually learn as you go but it's just such a unique sort of world I suppose it clicked with me because it's it's fantasy but it's got a very science fictional basis you know it's it's an a colony world that's lost contact with the rest of the universe for thousands of years. But there are bits of technology that are very ancient that everybody regards as magic. So it's got a little bit of a kind of Jack Vance feel, a little bit of a Clark Ashton Smith feel, but also Professor Barker, who created it, was an anthropologist and a linguist. and He traveled a lot in Southeast Asia and he just had it. It doesn't, people will say things like, oh, has it got a bit of Aztec to it? Or has it got a bit of India to it. And you have to say, no, he's he's so good that it's a complete creation. You can certainly say there are things like clan status and probably his years in India influence the way he sees caste and all that kind of thing. But it's not like he's appropriated a bunch of cultures, stuck them together and made a Frankenstein monster. You know, he's created something from whole cloth. So it's just endlessly fascinating, I think, as a world and the kind of, you can have so many types of adventures because you can go full sci-fi or you can go completely the other way into fantasy or culture gaming where it's really about the, the, 
the the etiquette and the you know we've had a whole games which have been legal cases hinging on um we had one character bought a kearney bird which is a, a bird that you could kind of teach to speak and he named it after the one of the other characters as an insult and this became an entire session in itself the the fallout from having done that so it's just it's once you've got such a rich culture you're completely free to improv within it so games can just go anywhere and i suppose that's why still you know 40 years on i'm still playing it normally uh, when people come on the starting point is often at dnd so it's great to have yeah no we 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 i dnd i did play some dnd then later when i got to college but uh, to me you know i i wasn't aware of dnd i came to ept first so which was interesting because it's the original book is basically original dnd with a you know rules wise barker had got got his own world and then i think he started playing some dnd and thought oh i'll just i'll stick these two things together so when i was reading the dnd rules i could see what he'd derived from those and why there were certain legacy things in ept that he'd obviously just ported across that never really made sense in ept but you could see he'd got them from dnd and brought them in and so so you played a bit of dnd what what other games were you playing around uh those oh, early years you know we're now we're in the late 70s so traveler was a big one where i actually did a, a a sort of a skin of original white box D as a victorian investigative game where players some could be magic users but they could only go to i think second level spells so it was really low low fantasy victorian and we played that for a bit then RuneQuest came along, but I think we're probably, for me, that would have been more the early 80s when I started to get into RuneQuest and just played through all the scenario books and everything, Griffin Mountain and all that. But those were the main ones. I mean, it wasn't like today where there's a new game, you know, my group now will say, oh, look, here's 10 games we could play. When when will we find the time? Then it was, you, you know, you expected to play EPT once a week. Actually, we played it more like five times a week throughout the year for years on end you know and that was your campaign you kept the characters now it's much you know it's changed in that way because i think nowadays we tend to play about 12 sessions and probably park a campaign move on to something else maybe come back but that continuous rolling mythology that you're building the soap opera feel that's that was more then than now i think and it's interesting that you've talked about two games that are uh, built in on setting, really, aren't they? So Tecumel and uh, RuneQuest that you played. It uh, is interesting you say that because I didn't. I was never that keen on the Glorantha's setting. I mean, I went with all the scenarios, but quite soon after that, we'll come back to this, but I was, I was working on a, a thing for Games Workshop, Quest World, and the whole point was to build a new world so most of my RuneQuest playing was actually set in one or other of my own worlds rather than in Glorantha. So I kind of, it was more the, what I think I particularly liked was casual play or more casual players could come in. And if you said your skill is 30%, they got it. Whereas almost all others war game derived sets of rules, you know, you'd say things like you've got a skill of nine and that's on 3d6 or something. And there'd be, I don't get what you're talking about. For 30%, everyone gets it. So it meant we could bring in players who were interested in the character role-playing part, but didn't come from the crunchy, wargamey 
statistics-based side of things. And RuneQuest is perfect for that. Yeah, the mechanics were more appealing than setting. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about your uh, contributions to White Dwarf later, but uh, mm-hmm. you, you will not believe how much that one-page uh, article that you did in issue 38 um, about the Quest world, world that you were working on, it sparked up so much imagination. We were so excited about uh, that there was going to be a new setting because... <laughs> uh, uh, like you, we were a little overwhelmed by uh, Glorantha, and uh, you know, just just that one page with the the hand drawn map on uh, mm-hmm. got us all very excited. Yeah, I put quite a lot of stuff on my blog about it because I I found all our I was working on it with Oliver Johnson, and I I found all our old notes. This was before Dragon Warriors, and um, we'd done a huge amount. You know, like there were about eight scenarios and the world background, and it's very North's draft. I mean, it would have needed another pass, but uh, Oliver had uh, done all the geography for what the climate would be, all that sort of stuff, you know. And he'd be saying to me, "Oh, you'd get you'd get a lot of seasonal storms up this bit of the coast." And I go, "Okay, fine, that's good as long as we know." Uh, and it never really occurred to me that that mattered. But um, it's good to know that it was slightly scientific, you know. But yeah, I I think I know what you mean about the one page thing because that's something. You also get in the early Emperor of the Petal Throne was because there was such a big world, but only the one book. There'd be little, like one paragraph, and you'd you'd keep having to reread it, you know. And your imagination would be shooting off in sort of quantum dimensions from this one little statement. There's a there's a science fiction author called Dan Walter, and he said he calls this ergodic ergodic literature, which is like particularly role playing setting rules where you read them and your brain is already exploring all the many adventures you'd like to have using that so it's almost like in a parallel sense you're already having those adventures as you're reading that one little bit you know and and really digging into it for information and inspiration Yes, and some authors are really good at doing that, aren't they? Um, yeah. Uh, Jack Vance, I know that you're a fan. Um, yeah. He, he's, he's, he can do that in a few lines, uh, create continents in, yes. in just a few sentences. Yeah. yeah. What happened with that Quest World project? So this was where Chaosium franchising out continents, yeah. <laughs> wasn't it? Yes, the idea behind it was that uh, I think different companies would have their own bit of the Quest World world. And it was just like, I think they probably gave us the coastline outline. This is why Oliver wanted to work out what what effect would that have on climates and so on. But so Workshop was just told, there you go, do whatever you want. That's your chunk. And they'd already got drawn on the quest, the big quest world map at Chaosium, where everybody's chunk was going. This was quite a pattern, I have to say, with Workshop in those days. There would be a new decision based on some commercial requirement, like, in the very early days, they lost the D&D license. So that's how I got involved with them in the first place, because they wanted a, a, a rival, a UK rival to D&D. But then they got the Questworld license. So it's like, oh, forget that thing. And I go, what, should I forget the 200 pages I've written? Yeah, yeah. But we want you to do some Questworld stuff now. So I did that. And then it's like, oh, we've got some other deal now. So never mind Questworld. So it, nothing, I, th- I think, Chaosium themselves released a Quest World pack, Did but they? nothing, nobody else ever, they never came to fruition, basically. 
there were probably other, I don't know what other companies were involved around the world, but there's probably someone in France with another stack of Questworld stuff and, you know, all around the place. And we could put them all together and make reconstruct Questworld, but it'd be a lot of work. <laughs> well, they, they've revived the brand, uh, Questworld. Oh, wow. Yes, because um, Hero Quest. The Robin D. Laws uh, system, they've sold mm-hmm. back the um, trademark to um, Asbro to do the board game. And uh-huh. so they're rebranding all the HeroQuest products as Quest Worlds. Um, let's talk about uh, Dragon Warriors then and how mm-hmm. uh, that project emerged. Because it, it is quite ambitious, isn't it? Um, a collectible series of books that would build up into a rule set. How did that come about? And um, what was the thinking behind it? Well, I suppose, um, I mean, it really came about because of the game book craze, you know, in the early 80s. And when I saw game books, to me, that was like, that's the gateway to role playing. That's the way I always regarded them. So while right, because every single publisher instantly wanted a game book series once Puffin was doing well with fighting fantasy. That basically meant everybody I knew was going in, was being asked to go to a publisher and come away with, you know, a six book deal. Most of us actually were, I mean, a good half of us were playing in the same campaign, you know, role playing campaign. So Jamie and Mark Smith and so on. But I'd always, you know, I really wanted to use that to do a role playing game. And so pitched this to Transworld. And I think they didn't really quite understand, but it was sufficiently successful uh, genre at the time uh, that they they were willing to take anything if they didn't really understand it in the hope that they would have another um, fighting fantasy type thing on their hands so I sort of got away with it really smuggled it in I think uh, is the best way to put it and quite quickly realized that we couldn't do a whole role-playing game so we had to we had to think in terms of making it episodic you know so that the first book was playable in its own right I think I oversold that to them, though, because they listened, kind of like nodding. Yeah, great. So each book, yeah. And then it turned out they distributed all of the copies of book three to Scotland, all of the copies of book two to somewhere else, all of the copies of book one, I think, to the south. I was going, yeah, see, that doesn't work because book three, for example, is all scenarios. So you're going to have to have the other books. And we thought it was quite convenient that you didn't have to have them all. So anyway, they relaunched, thankfully, and redistributed it properly. But the idea was that, you know, you could play book one and decided if you decide if you like it. And you didn't need to have the magic rules in that one. And then book two, you know, develop the magic rules, but also the adventures in there use the magic rules more. Then book three was because Oliver's not so Oliver Johnson's not so strong on the rules side. He did entirely scenarios that I just had to stat up for book three. And then we complete the next cycle was to go through effectively assassins and, and so on and do another three books. We were supposed to be 12 books, but the distribution thing hadn't really, that hadn't helped. And then the big clincher back then was to get international deals to support game books. And I remember the going into Transworld and the rights director said, oh, we've, we've got an offer from Gallimard in France but I'm going to turn that down because I think we can get a better deal from this tiny little publisher. And I was like, well, I guess you know what you're doing, but Gallimard's really big. And the Gallimard deal, you know, 
sustained a lot of game book series because it was a it was a, another market at least as big as the British market. Eight nine months later, I said, "Well, what's happening with the foreign rights?" Oh, that little publisher went out of business, so we've gone back to Gallimard. But by then, Gallimard were like, "Oh, we offered you a great deal before, but you turned it down." So it stumbled at that point, and Book Six was the last one, which was a shame. But that happens. And you're right to say that it is a, a gateway approach, isn't it? I know of lots of people who, for whom this was their first game. This is the one that got them hooked into uh, role-playing because it came at a good time and uh, there's like more waves of uh, young people coming in, as you say, through the game books. But I find it interesting that it uses the full run of the dice rather than uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 2d6. Well, yes. And you see, I said Oliver's not so hot on the rules, but that's unfortunate, you know, because he said, why don't we just use D6? And I was like, oh, you know nothing. I can't do the proper probability distributions with just D6. And he kept saying, I don't know, I think make a lot more sense. Because if you think about it, a lot of these people aren't going to be going into hobby shops. They're going into a bookshop. That's the whole point. And I was so used to disregarding Oliver's advice when it came to rules that I didn't listen to the one important thing he was telling me, which was just make it accessible. And it should have been, if only he'd said to me, and he knows me well enough, I bet you couldn't do a really good game with just D6. That would have been how to get me to do it. But that, yes, I apologize to everybody for having, you know, because a lot of people said to me, we got the books, but we didn't have it. We couldn't find 20-sided dice and what have you. So that sort of, that was the end of it for them. And I I should have been D6 based. So I'll fix that with Jewel Spider, only 40 years late or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about Jules Spider. It doesn't really have a core mechanic, does it? But the combat works by subtracting uh, attributes and uh, setting difficulty numbers and rolling under on a D20. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I would be thinking of something like RuneQuest where you'd got attack, parry, attack, parry, you know, that kind of thing. And one complaint that players have made was, there's a lot of dice rolling, you know, I've made my attack. No, you didn't because I parried it and it would just go on until somebody fumbled and a bit of armor fell off or something. And so I said, oh, well, I, I guess we can reduce that to one roll, i.e. you have an attack and I have a defense. Let's subtract one from the other and make that roll or less. And I was thinking, well, most of the people playing this are quite young, so they probably won't be drunk when they play. So subtracting one number from another, which would probably defeat many people in their 20s. But when you're a bit younger, it's easy peasy. So um, I just thought, well, that, that halves the number of rolls people have got to make. So it's, it makes a nice sort of quick play game. Um, so that and that, you know, that's extended to dodging things as well. So an attack has a speed and you've got an evasion. And again, there's a subtraction and same thing with spells, um, you know, the, the, in terms of resisting them. Um, and I was quite into th- having spell expiry roles because I thought there's a lot of bookkeeping. This is something I suppose was inspired by, by RuneQuest because instead of having to keep track of experience, you just you just check the fact that you've successfully used something and you get a roll later. And I was thinking, well, that's brilliant because there's no need to keep track of this stuff continually. One roll decides if you made it or not. And so I thought well, that's a bit harsh on experience because you might fumble, you know, you fluff that roll and you wasted your whole adventure in a way, if that's what you're after. 
but with spell expiry, I thought, well, that's perfect because people just need to roll to see if the spell runs out. And, uh, and, and then you have the knock-on effect of, oh, well, if you cancel the spell, you get some of the points back if you do it before the expiry. And I just, lead, you know, that's, it's always nice when you think, oh, and that mechanic leads to this and this and this, and that's quite fun. And people can use it. You know, there'll be a player will say, oh, I'll just have enough points to do the healing if I cancel this defensive spell before it runs out. And then you see them using it creatively. So that's, that's satisfying. I also think, I also think it's uh, striking that the archetypes that you choose for the game as well. So, there's t- you know, right from the outset, there's two fighting types, mm-hmm. isn't there? Uh, the knight and the barbarian. What was the idea behind that? I think because we were you know, in a very soft way, putting a bit of cultural stuff, you know, the legend background in, there was the sense that you could be a respectable, you know, you'd be a person of social authority. That would be like the knight. But there'd be plenty of fighters who were basically the grubby. They've learnt to fight as mercenaries or whatever. And as a catch-all, they were the barbarians. So they they could very well be become the Conan-type character who eventually becomes a lord or whatever. But um, I remember in some very early games, we were playing some games with the sales reps at Transworld. And of course, they'd never role played, but they wanted to understand it in order to f- sell it in the bookshops. They immediately glommed onto this um, thing about that. One of them said they got to a village in the middle of the night and they were saying, where can we sleep and banging on doors? And then one of them said, I'm a knight, aren't I? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, hang on. And he starts yelling, if you peasants don't get down here, I'm going to burn this whole place down and then I'm going to complain to your Lord. And they all came out and, and he was saying, this is great. It was better for him than the, than the fighting part was that he got the social rank that went with it. So it was really just a, a very light way of steering players into that kind of thinking, I guess. And uh, thieves and sneaky uh, folk, uh, assassins. Yeah, and it, but even there, they're, they're mostly, because by that stage, the world was you know, we were firming it up. It was book four. So I was able to say, you know, to really train in these techniques, you have to, you know, you you have to belong to, you could be self-made, you know, and somebody could just go, look, I, I've always been sneaky and I like murdering people. So I've trained myself to be an assassin. But I thought with all the kind of really exotic techniques, the ninjury stuff that we'd built in, there needed to be actual groups that people could belong to or have belonged to that would account for them having learnt that body of knowledge. So we had the, you know, the clan of Harbingers and the uh, uh, Marija assassins who are basically the Hashashin and things like that. So uh, Jamie Thompson played a character who'd been uh, a, a Westerner orphan in the Crusades who'd been taken in at the age of two or three by the Marija assassins, brought up as an assassin. But because he looked like a Westerner, they could send him back to assassinate the Crusaders. So that was his job, basically, to hang around with the other players, look like a uh, somebody from what was the equivalent of Northern Europe. But he's actually, you know, a member of this assassin cult for the, the Tashim. And th- that's the most striking thing of... Uh, this set of books is the setting and the setting of legend uh, because it's very much grounded in history isn't it mm-hmm. well i yeah i mean it, some people have played it and i think that's fine to do that to say they'll call chabret france for example and that's all i thought was when you look at these medieval maps they don't look like 
our world. They, they're their best guess. You know, they're, they've drawn a big blob and they go, well, that's roughly where India is. And I thought, okay, well, let's draw a map the way that, because the whole idea of legend was that it's the world the way a medieval person would imagine it to really be. So you don't, you're not supposed to typically meet sorcerers, but the average medieval peasant utterly believes in sorcerers. Consequently, they're real. And he thinks on the moor, there will be ogres. If I go in the mist and I hear something muttering, I should run because that's an ogre. So that's the world they're in. And, and I thought, I don't want to I don't want to go chivalry and sorcery and say, here's France, here's Germany. This is the year, you know, 1196. And this is happening because that's immediately a history lesson. I thought people can bring as much or as little real world stuff to it as they like. It's clearly a, a kind of twisted version of our Middle Ages, but people should people are free to make their own world of it. So that's that was the idea behind that. What appealed to me um, with the mixture of the feudal and the fae um, was that it struck me as being like uh, Vance's Leoness, which I know that you've contributed to the new game uh, on that. Uh, it, it was, was that an influence? Well, I've got a feeling Leoness actually came out after I'd oh. already created Legend. It's, it's interesting you say that because I was rereading Leoness and thinking, oh, I owe a great debt to Vance. And then I... I realized when I would have read Leoness and thought, no, I don't. It's the other way around. <laughs> but I suppose that was part of kind of zeitgeist. I mean, there were things like Robin of Sherwood and um, that. I, another thing, I guess, is that the, the D&D had come from a particular branch of fantasy, the sword and sorcery stuff. Gygax himself said he was more influenced by pulp fantasy than by, say, things like Tolkien. I think there was much more, I'd been brought up much more on British folklore, which obviously an American wouldn't have that, you know, as part of the landscape really is folklore tales. You can't go anywhere in this country without there being some local legends and they're usually really interesting and creepy and all that. So I just wanted to build that into the world, that sense of we've encountered dwarves in, in, in our legend campaigns, but, it's uh, they're really almost like rocks have come to life. They're not um, you go in the pub and there's a few short fellas with a tankard. You know, it's we went up a mountainside and annoyed the king of the mountain by by practicing sword play. And so found ourselves lost as we were coming down and went into the caves. And there was this sense that there were things there. But it was just that I just the idea that magic should be and the fae should be something mysterious and unpredictable and that's definitely in Leoness but as I say it must have come because I know Vance's wife was British and he he often vacationed in in England so I think that probably he was just drawing on a similar well of inspiration there. We organised a, a convention in Manchester and last year uh, one of the GMs did uh, Mythego Wood using the uh, Dragon Warriors rules. Oh fantastic what a great idea. Oh, yes. I love Mythago Wood as well. So, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, that did influence um, Bloodsword. There's a, there's a bit in, I think it's the third book, where you face um, what effectively are ancient deities, but Prince Sasurian, who summoned them, explains that they're actually Mythagos. Of the, they're not the real ancient deities, but they're quite powerful enough to totally destroy the players. But, and that had come from the idea that how, you know, 
how myth works and how we make images from myths and things like that. And that's definitely Robert Holstock, yeah. Oh, we stopped playing and went into a, a deep freeze and emerged sometime in uh, about 10 years ago. So what happened to uh, Dragon Warriors uh, during that period? Because it continued as a brand, didn't it, and as a, as a game? It slept in a cave with its knights and horses <laughs> for a decade or so. We were still playing it, but most of my younger players, although they had been introduced to D and uh, to, to to role playing with Dragon Warriors, I think they felt that was a bit like too much like going back to childhood. So they'd moved on to GURPS, and so um, we ended up using GURPS for most of our campaigns for a long while. And then James Wallace uh, said to me, "What about resurrecting the original?" Dragon Warriors, you know, do a nice bound book and all the rest of it. So, um, and he did just a beautiful job of that. You know, I mean, I was going to say it would have been great to have that back in the eighties, but I guess the whole point was to make it cheap as chips. You know, I wanted it to be something you get the whole game for a tenner, basically all six books. So, but the, uh, there's no doubt that the, the Magnum Opus edition, uh, just looks fantastic. And also John Hodgson as the artist is to me, the definitive, legend artist you know he absolutely gets the the folkloric feel in all of his pictures so i mean there are other great artists on there as well i don't want to take anything away from them but his stuff to me was he he was the artist we really i would have liked to have had him back in the 80s you're now working on uh dual spider which is the uh next iteration of it in a way it is i mean it's it's not really Dragon Warriors in that, um, <clears throat> you know, I see people will play Dragon Warriors. There's, uh, you know, Grim Jim Desborough has been doing a YouTube campaign. It looks like a great campaign, but it's reminded me how, you know, what a Dragon Warriors game would typically be like. And Jewel Spider is, is a much, um, it's the basic idea behind Jewel Spider was that, you know, sitting around having a game, you're having a conversation and you want the ability to say something like, um, I follow the guy down the street and he doesn't notice me. And I want to not interrupt that conversation too much with dice rolling. So I wanted a, a means of saying, okay, anything that you say you're going to do can be quickly resolved with D6. And then we, you know, you move on with the improv side of it. So I would say if somebody wanted to do, uh, you know, old style Dragon Warriors dungeon-y stuff then Dragon Warriors or Dungeon Crawl Classics or something like that would clearly do that job better than Jewel Spider. But the Jewel Spider games I've been running are, are much more kind of broad and freewheeling, you know, that they're not, they're not uh, ever anything like the King Under the Forest so that you don't just go to a place and do a, a cavern system. Um, it's much more bits of social, bits of sneaking, bits of investigation, bits of fighting, bits of magic, or, you know, as fast as the players are coming up with stuff. So it's built to be much more improv I think partly because we'd been playing some games like I played Sagas of the Icelanders. Just, I kind of didn't really expect that I'd enjoy it as much as I did, but I really liked the... Cause, I was very dubious about every fight being over basically in one dice roll, but it so perfectly captured, first of all, what the actual Icelandic sagas are like. I mean, every single game was 
just like one of the sagas. And in fact, Oliver Johnson did a write-up. And I said, it basically is a new saga. You've written, it should go alongside, you know, Grittier's saga and Jarl's saga. Well, now we've got this one. But also the the speed of the freedom, I suppose, it gave the players to improvise rather than feel the rules are expecting us to do a certain thing. It meant you could do anything. And I wanted that feel. So I'm less keen on is saying... Um, which I know is quite common these days to say, you know, this is a game about X in which the players are Y and they do Z. And I feel Dugal Spider should be the game people want it to be, rather than a lot of games now try to be the genre rather than the reality. So it's like a Tarantino movie. If he does World War II, he's not interested in World War II. He's interested in World War II movies. And his movie is set in a movie, effectively, universe not a real universe. Same thing with Django, any of those. That If he does a his, historical period, it's actually set in the movie imaginary of that period, not in the real period. And I, I like the idea that legend is in its real universe, as it were, its real fantasy universe. And what genre you want to play is entirely up to you. So one bunch of players might say, we investigate strange goings on for the tax authorities. <laughs> That's up to them. Others, oh, we we clear goblins off the off the moors and the genre, you know, they could be quite different genres effectively that they're playing because the rules allow you to, to do whatever you want. That's what I'm aiming for anyway. That's very true, isn't it? That um, game design now seems to be centered around uh, what is the core activity and uh, building things around that rather than, as you say, allowing people to find that themselves or giving them the scope to, to create their own activities within within the setting and the mechanics. Yeah, well, we we played a, a game recently where we had a guest referee came in, and Ralph Lovegrove, in fact, from Victorplasm, and he he's much more used to the Powered by the Apocalypse type games. Our players do whatever they want, and of course, the the main I I think the main point of the the kind of games he would typically play is that you conform within a a genre that you're you're cooperating with other players to make a movie effect us uh, that's trivializing it a bit but to to make a story whereas our group because we're into improv story you may discern stories after the event but you're not trying you're not sitting there consciously going we must make a story with an arc you're just doing what you want to do as a as you would in real life you know if we go you know if somebody goes on holiday they don't think i'm having i'm going on a a road trip like a movie they just think i'm doing what i'm doing today i'm going to do something that's fun then when they come back they give you their anecdotes and you go that's great that was that's your life for a week whereas you know some of these games are designed to <clears throat> to be much more of an envelope with beginning middle and end and so ralph was saying you know your group completely broke i think he enjoyed it but it it broke the concept that we were creating a story together everybody was just doing what their characters felt like doing you know and that i prefer that because it's completely when you're running it you have no idea what to expect in the next five minutes you know and i i always like that feeling it's a it's an idea um as you're saying earlier about a continuing drama you know like uh you know zola created worlds uh, opposed to a one-off yeah Yes, exactly. If it's an ongoing story, you can't genreize it because pretty quickly that would become, you know, very formulaic and tedious. So you have to treat it as 
I, I guess I'm going back to, you know, Tecumel, we, we got off a boat. The idea was, you you know, you're probably in your late teens, you're, you've come to seek your fortune. And if we imagined anything, it would be, it's like Conan, where he, he starts, you know, if you look at them chronologically, he starts as a, uh, you know, at the bottom of the heap and he works his way all the way up to the top. And, and the, it's the story of his life, as it were. And that's what we were thinking, that games should be the story of a parallel life rather than a specific drama that we're all cooperating to. I mean, mo- for one thing, most of my players don't really cooperate with each other. Much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so going back to Joe Spider, what are the plans for that? Because I know you've got a Patreon to support uh, the development of it. Well, it's ma- that's mainly for the artwork because I, I thought, um, you know, I can, I'm going, I'm doing it anyway for for our own group. But um, I started getting bits of, you know out of copyright historical artwork and I thought oh this just looks a bit crap you know and I'd I'd really like to have some nice maps at least a you know a few nice color pictures because they're so evocative you know you want people to be able to look at it and think that's so I'm hoping John Hodgson has kind of said he will do some stuff and um, probably by the end of the year I'll release um, the, the sort of beta to the Patreon backers and they can give me their feedback so that, you know, spring, summer next year, by the time I've got some really nice artwork, I can release it. I mean, it's going to be a little book, you know, not big A4, but um, sort of paperback sized, like the original books, a little bit bigger format. But uh, I don't want it to be, you know, really thick. I don't, you know, those those rule books that you can't lift. It's just... um, I say this, I mean, it may actually get longer than I'm expecting because the basic rules could fit into about five or six pages. But then, of course, the magic in particular, I'm, I'm really, I really want to make that something special. And it's kind of difficult because, like, the players we have are so creative. Um, I, I tried uh, in one of our playtest sessions Tim Harford took a, a sorcerer, but he's so good at improv that what I was actually seeing was not whether my system was good, but how good Tim was at improving a sorcerer. So I really need to make sure that works. You know, it's, it's got to feel, it's got to be quick to use, but also have all the, the strangeness that sorcery needs to have. So, I mean, I've got to, it, that's becoming the big part of, that's the hard part really of the rules at the moment. I've enjoyed reading your updates where you're trying to get through the knots of some of this stuff in the magic system. So, because that's like a a monthly newsletter, if you like, just give yeah, I, I try to get a, yeah. a couple of updates a month in there. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm I've got so much books and books, you know, of folklore I've been reading through, and I'm I like the idea, some odd ideas, like because the basic idea in the Jewel Spider rules is that you make you have a um, a core um, ability in each area let's say like agility so that's for dodging and stuff but you would also have a stat which is graceful say in that case and that can be minus three to plus three and that doesn't affect your chance of doing it but if you do it it affects how good it is so i might be i guess it would be something like you know a, a removal guy he might have a high force stat, but not necessarily be strong. You know, you see some, 
guys who know how to lift something. They learn the technique. So the technique is in the stat, but your uh, is in the ability. But then the the stat determines you equally well. You could have a very strong guy who doesn't know how to lift something well, so he doesn't know how to use his strength. So anyway, that's the core system. But tools modify the degree of success. So a, a sword, if you hit somebody with a sword, you're going to have a greater degree of success than, and that's effectively damage, than if you hit them with a wooden stick. In magic, books would be one of the possible tools. But then I thought, because what, the way it's used in folklore, actually reading the book, which is kind of the, what you imagine logically would be necessary, I open the book and read a spell from it. But then you realize that this is a largely illiterate culture in which they believe that just owning a book is what gives you power, not actually reading it, that they just think, well, he's got 20 books, he must be a really powerful sorcerer. So I thought well, that should probably be reflected in that it's more like it's an iconic thing you have. You don't, so it, we don't need to go into the details of can you find the page the spell is on and blah. It's just I have the one copy of the book of Zavachind. And you go, oh, my goodness, he's going to be really tough, that guy. And you know it will have an effect on his spells just because he owns this thing. And stealing it from his library would steal some of his power. So I'm hoping, anyway, if I can get all these bits to actually work the way they are working in my imagination, it should be good. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, Patreon. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dave, for that. And it was was really interesting. So you're going to return next time and face the Games Master screen. Sure will. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. White Dwarf. Dealing with Dave Morris. There are a number of writers whose names are irrevocably linked with the RPG Hey Dave White Dwarf, Marcus L. Rowland, Lou Pulsifer, Andy Slack, Oliver Dickinson, Graham Davis, to name just a few. Also in this illustrious group is Dave Morris, starting in White Dwarf's first golden age and through the push to bring the magazine to a wider audience. He was a regular name in its pages with varied and entertaining scenarios, thought-provoking articles, and more rune-rights features than you can shake a trolkin at. He wrote them all, and that's not to mention the demons. The earliest contribution from Dave Morris I could find was his review of Champions in Open Box, issue 30. But he came to prominence with several features in the rune-rights column. So much so, that when Oliver Dickinson gave up editing the column, Dave took over, issuing a call to arms in issue 52 for innovative submissions and sparkling ideas. One person who at least answered the call was Matthew Pook, with rules for gladiators in RuneQuest in issue 59. I wonder what happened to him? The rumour is, though, that Dave wasn't exactly flooded with contributions and he had to write a number of runewrite submissions himself using various pseudonyms. Whatever the case, for a more detailed look at the runewrites column, I'd urge you to listen to episode 10 of the Grog Pod. Like you need an excuse to re-listen to old episodes. Incidentally, As part of my scouring of the back issues for this episode, I did notice that in Treasure Chest issue 31, there was two magic items from someone called Dave Morrison. Was this the first example of Dave Morris's love of pseudonymous submissions? Or did I fumble my investigation role? 
Dave was also a regular on White Dwarf's letters page, starting in issue 41, where he declared, The concept of alignment is simplistic and outmoded, much to the annoyance of Don Turnbull, no doubt. All the way up to issues 83 and 85, here he entered into what I hope was a good-natured disagreement with the then-editors, Paul Coburn and Mike Brunton, on the quality of Games Workshop's products at the time. To be fair, I'm not sure that describing their output as candy floss games and fast book rubbish was likely to endear you to the company's staff. But what of the articles and scenarios themselves? With Zen and the Art of Adventure Gaming in issue 40, Dave brought us Feudal Japan to RuneQuest. This article explained how to run samurai player characters. There was plenty of meat for the weapons enthusiasts and assorted fighting skills, including the Laijutsu, a katana fast draw. They're all well translated into game mechanics. The focus here was squarely on combat. Magic was only available when player characters reached Rune Lord equivalent and gained a patron spirit. Akami. This could then inhabit their sword or their horse and cast spells on their behalf. He also included some brief useful campaign notes, noting that a samurai game required buy-in from the players and warning that the pursuit of honour could lead to inter-party conflict. Samurai were not gentlemen. For a games master without much knowledge of the setting and time period, i.e. me, this packed some interesting background detail into its modest two pages. It didn't swamp the Games Master with detail, but gave plenty of ideas for further development. The East Asia theme continued in issue 47, with the scenario Quadan, the only one to appear in White Dwarf for the Bushido RPG. This was co-written with Oliver Johnson, and required the play characters to act as bodyguards for a Buddhist monk, tasked with performing an exorcism to rid a distant province of unquiet spirits. As I've already said, I'm by no means an expert on Japanese culture, but this scenario really had an authentic feel to it. That was due in no small part to the location, which was beautifully realised it was an eerie abandoned monastery perched at the edge of the coast. This gave the whole adventure a really chilling atmosphere with some disquieting descriptions of the, the spectral presences with which to unnerve the players. I did find the layout of the adventure on the page a bit confusing and hard to follow at times having to track back and forth to get my head around the details but it had a nice free-form structure. The gamesmaster was encouraged to keep the things loose and adapt the encounters to the player's actions. A possible convention one-shot for you Legend of the Five Rings gamesmasters out there? Not content with introducing White Dwarf readers to one RPG, Bushido, Dave Morris repeated the trick in issue 71 with the scenario A Box of Old Bones. For his own game, Dragon Warriors, once again this adventure was set in a monastery, 
this time of the medieval variety. The PCs had to deal with shenanigans around holy relics and some monks not quite as innocent as they might have first appeared. For me, this was much better structured than the Quaidon. Separate sections were presented for the timeline, the major NPCs and some entertaining magical items. It was all a bit scripted, but still with the opportunity for the player characters to meddle. While statistics were also given for AD&D, this felt much better fit for the darker, earthier feel of Dragon Warriors. While it could descend into a sword fight, I imagine this would be a much more satisfying adventure if the intrigue was played up by the GM, with the NPCs skulking in the shadows, everyone's motives under suspicion, and the Cadfael-style investigation brought to the fore. Great stuff. Rewinding the clock a bit, Dave Morris wrote two scenarios with Eve Newingham. The first was A Ballad of Times Past, an AD&D adventure published in issue 51. This had a real fairy tale quality to the narrative, set in a world where magic was extremely rare. An ancient prophecy led the players on a mission to protect a legendary creature from sorcery. A few things struck me while reading this again. There's a chance of instant death on a failed dexterity roll, which seemed a bit harsh to me. Or was this common in AD&D adventures at the time? It was also amusing to find that Dave Morris seemed to regard 42 as a venerable age. I wonder if he still thinks that. I wonder if any of us do. What struck me most was how scripted the scenario was. It came across as an RPG equivalent of a video game with extended cutscenes or a game book with only limited options. Ah yes. Game books. Issue 52 of White Dwarf was a big relaunch for the magazine, attempting to find a wider audience, while also being sold in mainstream newsagents for the first time. Given the fast-growing popularity of fighting fantasy game books at the time, White Dwarf editor Jamie Thompson commissioned his mate Dave Morris to write a solo adventure to attract new readers. So again, in collaboration with Eve Newham, we had The Castle of of Lost Souls, which ran over four issues. This used a slightly more complex mechanics than fighting fantasy, but otherwise, in the best game book traditions, this was a classic fantasy romp, involving you as a hero collecting various items, tackling goblins and giants, before heading into the eponymous castle, and a date with a demon. What really lifted it, though, were some well-drawn locations, a reoccurring feature of Dave Morris's work, and a peppering of dry, deadpan humour throughout the tale. Also, a game book career was launched. However, all this waffle, and we've not addressed Dave Morris's magnum opus. Yes, it's finally time that we dealt with demons. There are a number of features from the first golden age of White Dwarf that people remember to this day. Irillian, the dungeon architect, Lou Pulsifer's necromancer character class, and there's Dave Morris's Dealing with Demons, an out-and-out classic article series for RuneQuest on all things demonic, billed as an official part of Games Workshop's contribution to Questworld. The first part, 
Demon Magic was published in issue 44. I won't mention that cover. Damn, I mentioned the cover. The launch of Questworld coincided with my crisis of confidence with all things Gloranthan, so I was intrigued. This offered the promise of a setting that didn't require an extensive background knowledge of every single cult, and it felt a bit less like homework. I was still a big fan of RuneQuest, the game, though the existing magic system was a little prosaic. This article offered something much more exciting, something darker, more in tune with the magic of swords and sorcery tales and the stories of Michael Moorcock. Dave Morris presented magic with dire consequences, where there was an inevitable price to be paid. Plenty of new skills were listed for the determined or reckless seeker of power. Rituals of summoning, binding and banishment. These were rare skills. Demonology was a lonely and dangerous pursuit, only learned from ancient grimoire or by seeking out master demonologists. The game mechanics were well thought through. I particularly liked the blind bidding of the summoner's power against the demons during the binding, which left an element of doubt in the mind of the player for the GM to exploit. Did that binding really work? The text had some very evocative and flavourful descriptions, as in the banishment spell, the Cursed of Astrian. If successful, both the demon and the summoner disappeared forever from the world. Were they simply annihilated or transported to another dimension where they battled for eternity? Accompanying the article was a full-page, step-by-step guide to demon summoning. It was just as well that White Dwarf was a British magazine, given that this was published around the same time. Satanic panic was raging across the pond. Imagine the concerned women for America had ever read it. They would have been, well, concerned at the very least. A fun first part, then, for a tasty hors d'oeuvre for what was to come. Part 2. The Lesser Demons was a mini-monster manual, a demonic smorgasbord of RuneQuest nasties. Beautifully written once again, with a clever idea that many of the characteristics of the various demons could only be determined through prior study and a successful demonology role. Since this was rolled by the gamesmaster, the player couldn't know if they'd failed and could potentially be given an erroneous information by the gamesmaster. Oh, you are awful, Mr. Morris. This increased the level of threat faced by the player characters, as is right and proper when dealing with demons. Some creatures, like the succubus and incubus, were already familiar from D&D, but many others were new. Paupiers, gaunt, blue-skinned vampires, the shoggoth-like amorph, the serame, a giant maggot on long spidery legs, don't have nightmares, and rults, fly-headed with shredded flesh and skeletal wings. Ugh! Once again, the article had lots of lovely gameable details, like summoners having to bind themselves in chains when invoking a succubus or incubus, as it would use its charms to try and tempt the summoner out of their pentacle of protection. 
fantastic stuff. But the best had been saved for last. The third part of the series, The Demonic Nobility, left a real impression on me when I first read it all those years ago. And it's the one that stayed with me ever since. Once read, never forgotten. A number of demon lords and princes were evocatively described, the full powers uncertain and shrouded in mystery, often neutral when encountered, too powerful to be concerned with the petty dealings of mere mortals. In this regard, the article was beautifully served by some superlative illustrations. Each was signed JJ. I think the artist was John Mould. My apologies if I got that wrong. Each, while suitably demonic, had a haughty, disdainful air, a look of almost weariness in their eyes, as though they'd been witness to eons of suffering. And the demon lords and princes didn't just have names, they had titles such as the Lord Tisayanra, Screaming Metal Spirit, Demon of Ferocity, the Lord of Umalu, the Whip of Chaos, Demon of Pain, his demonic majesty, Aldemar, the Lord of the Vaults of Eternity, Monarch of Demons. The article was full of wonderful writing. For example, our friend Lord Tensayanra. He embodies the lightning attack, the unrelenting ferocity of battle, the prowling spirit of savage death. Each demon had a similar evocative description that couldn't help but inspire the gamesmaster and conjure ideas for potential adventures in their mind. This was all coupled with solid game mechanics covering topics such as selling your soul and the powerful gifts that these beings could then bestow upon the play characters. Dave Morris ended the article with a word of warning to the gamesmaster to use the demonic nobility sparingly, emphasising their behind-the-scenes influence rather than a direct appearance in the games, however tempting that might be. Any involvement in the affairs of the demon princes, however minor, was fraught with risk and a real threat to any of the characters daring or foolish enough to meddle. This series was followed soon after by a scenario, The Lone and Level Sands, written by Oliver Johnson and Dave Morris. In his blog, Dave attributes most of the writing to Oliver Johnson. This showcased a number of the creatures from the articles once again, with a real sense of place being evoked, with the PCs headed for the desert, hired for a spot of tomb raiding, and promised all the gold that they could carry. But who knows what else they might find lurking under the sands. The sitting had a clear ancient Egyptian influence, a dollop of Indiana Jones on top for a good measure. I also wondered if maybe there was a little homage to the cover of the AD&D Plays Handbook with the 50-foot statue with the jewelled eyes at the entrance. What self-respecting Tomb Raider could resist? The adventure had a satisfying old-school flavour with plenty of fearsome guardians and traps to deter looters. 
the backstory could be drip-fed to the players as they progressed further into the tomb and examined the hieroglyphs they found. The games master could ratchet up the tension as the PCs began to realise the potential threats they faced, which all made for a very atmospheric adventure. Did Oliver Johnson take advice from the article, though, and resist the temptation to include a demon lord? You'd have to make it to the central burial chamber to find out. Just be careful with any relics you might find. The Lone and Level Sands was a fine way to round off the series from Messrs. Morrison Johnson. Look on the works, ye mighty, and despair. So, there you go. Dave Morris in White Dwarf. A great imagination, wonderful writing, but always on the focus of making everything gameable. My first thought after reading each of these features was, I can't wait to bring this to the table. And, as a wise man once said, plays the thing. Hello fellow Grognard Pod listeners. My name is Dave Patterson and uh, I'm a recovering game nerd. Uh, I wrote this address to you uh, from the ancestral home in Tenby, glamorous playground of the rich and fabulously gifted. Uh, and recently uh, I found myself spending more time uh, putting serious consideration to my retirement plan to Don Groggin and wondering how much I should budget for tea bags and hobnobs. So I was quite pleasantly surprised and not a little humbled to be invited to start my internal monologue anew with my first, last and indeed everything. So I ought, I suppose, to start with my thanks to Dirk and Blythe for letting me loose on such an august exercise in gaming mental memorabilia. I've long been an admirer of previous contributors to the Walrus of Love's most famous question, and like most grognards, I have, I suspect, rehearsed what I might say were I ever to be asked, a bit like a bashful groom on his wedding day. And like most grogs, I'm going to do it in completely the wrong stream of consciousness order. I shall also forget to congratulate the bridesmaids on looking lovely. Strained analogy, ahoy. But I have been asked, and I have a terrible feeling I should be found wanting. It's an awesome burden. Uh, not quite up there with knowing the identity of who shot J.R., or indeed the secret to eternal youth, and knowing that only a penitent man shall pass, but pretty close. It's not the first or the last part of the eternal question that I'm struggling with. In fact, I can, depending on timing, know exactly the last game I played in pretty short order. Sunday, Cthulhu Dark Ages, Monday, Down Darker Trails or, or Alien, Tuesday, Old School Essentials or Traveller, Wednesday, Spire or maybe Liminal. And yes, I do realise that I'm so lucky that my dance card is so full. And in fact, on the matter of this sort of fund of playtime, up until a couple of years ago, I'd never tried online play, but took the leap with Barbarians of Lemuria and absolutely never looked back. I've seen some of the Grog community are a little trepidatious about online play, but please don't be. Dip your toe in, and before you know it, you'll be away. I've only ever found others happy to help and tolerant of even imbeciles like me, so if you can, have a go. 
Oh, and the other thing is, don't believe all this hype about having to have legible maps in the games that you run. It should really be virtually unreadable and a sort of a confusion of coloured lines on a standard white background. And that's canon. Just ask Jim. Back to the job in hand, though. And as I record this, my last game was Spire. A quite extraordinary blend of setting, mysticism, loose ruling, goats, dice rolling, and, it has to be said, bonkers gaming that you are likely to come across. Now, this may be down to the group involved, but if you can, play it. And as long as you can suspend disbelief for a while, you will have a riot of what can only be called hijinks shenanigans. I won't even attempt to explain heart. It's slightly madder cousin under the stairs. But my first uh, game, well, at this point... Uh, I'm going to absolutely stretch the format to the limit. I was recently informed by very long-term friend and friendly local game store owner, Ed of Fannyside. Yes, you did hear that right. That my first game as a player was AD&D, and I was a fighter first time round. Now, I genuinely remember the people I played with, but nothing of the game other than being enthralled and not a little bemused. And I went on to the fantasy trip so soon after that that I'm not actually sure it wasn't just a bad dream. However, my first game, uh, the one that I'm going to own up to, and the one that I felt was really mine, and, and was first mine to exclusively GM, or perhaps in a, in a slightly different way, and maybe a little less proprietorial, the game that had the biggest impact long term, and, and the biggest impact on me in that sort of first flush of callow youth. It was in fact another game, another fantasy game, and also homegrown, and that was Dragon Warriors. Formed out of six lovingly caressed paperbacks, sporting covers of muscular knights, wizards with arms aloft and enormous idols, Dragon Warriors became the basis for me finding my GMing legs. Eschewing the campaign of the books, a collection of four adventures in one of the Volumes called The Elven Crystals, book three, I think. I sent a small group of intrepid adventurers into a fantasy Suffolk on a wild goose chase to solve six riddles and claim a portion of the land to call their own. Marvellous. The game itself seemed to generate feel and atmosphere. It was a great little system that neatly dealt with some of the more woolly aspects of the other fantasy games, and it had an energy and setting that felt recognisably British and familiar, and yet still fantastical enough to be endlessly interesting and surprising to play or GM. It also contained some brilliant touches, such as the Rathabosk Bridge, City and Bridge, top bombing. Uh, there were some elements I didn't care for. Standard damage, for example, and fights could last for a while if defences were high. But the rest I absolutely adored, and the flexibility of the system has been shown, to me anyway, to absolutely brilliant effect by Roger Coe at Grogmeet in 2019. And he actually ran a scenario that was a mashup of Mythigo Wood, a fantastic book Ahoy, and the Dragon Warriors rules to combine as probably the greatest RPG experience I've ever had. And here I've used the same manner as Carlsberg do, poorly. But it was probably the best RPG experience I've had. So that's my last Spire, my first, or the first I'm admitting to, Dragon Warriors. So what about the Gordian Knot, my everything.
The game that means more to me than anything. The game I could not live without. The game I would mortgage body parts to keep playing. How can I be invited to so casually murder my darlings? 35 years ago, I would have said Call of Cthulhu. Five years ago, as I re-entered life from the deep freeze, I would have said Call of Cthulhu. Last year, and even during parts of the pandemic, I would have said Call of Cthulhu. But I think I have a new love, a new mistress, a new queen in my realm, so to speak. And she comes with flaming red hair and wooden teeth. The Virgin Queen, Lizzie. And swirling around her is a torrent of intrigue and mayhem, an insubstantial magical vortex that is the Maelstrom. A quirky little game, originally published as a sort of large format paper book. My overriding impression when I first had it was, doesn't it like herbs a lot? And surely it needs a shug off at least. Uh, but in looking for something sort of firmly rooted in back in the day for Grog Meatish this year, I went searching for a gem from the past and I found Maelstrom. But why, though, would an odd little game set initially in Tudor England have such an impact? Well, apart from the idea of almost all activity within the game being solved from the character sheet, something that I'm particularly um, sort of pedantic, I guess you'd say, about, uh, and a nice way of sort of assessing damage based on the quality and the cost of martial equipment. You know, the more expensive your sword was, the better it is to use, the more damage it does, which I thought was quite neat. It was the magic system, really, that captivated me, I think, this time round. I've always struggled a little bit with magic, and it was, within reason, sort of fairly freeform. You could do almost anything, and sort of in order to assess the failure or success of uh, a magical spell, you'd only to pass a graded skill check. Now, the difficulty for that was set by a scale that goes from likely to sort of just about impossible via barking mad. So the whole game, and particularly this idea of spell casting, really, really worked. You could use imagination for spells, but you had some sort of context within which to grade that to actually make a sort of a success or a failure role. Um, and the scenario that we played at Grog Meters I thought worked quite well. I'd like to do something a bit longer term, though, and it really has given me a new sort of lease of life. So if the whole game works well for me, you know, loose enough to allow players and GM to express themselves and with enough rules, or maybe it's rulings uh, rather than rules, then uh, it just needs that little bit of structure in the background to to sort of anchor it. The Elizabethan setting that came with it with and with the professions that were there, the amount of depth and the historical elements, and of course the herbs, it really is absolutely fantastic. Great little game. And if you can, it's on print on demand via drive-through RPG, and there are a few copies sort of knocking about. I think it's it's really worthwhile going. It also works well when you refine for other settings as well. So there is everything from Dark Ages, and I think they've started to do a science fiction one. So again, that's one to look out for. Uh, it's all been added to the game over the intervening 30-odd years or so. And I'm going to look at bringing back uh, into my gaming canon uh, that Elizabethan horror mashup. And I'm intent on calling it Hey Noni Cthulhu, uh, just to keep my Lovecraft hand in, so to speak. However, Maelstrom needs to keep an eye out over its shoulder. And that's the reason uh, the de-sanction. It flirts with that same kind of endlessly fascinating territory. So 
damn you, progress. Anyway, there you have it. Last, first, past, current, everythings, uh, and a watching brief on a new kid on the block. That is the name of this segment, isn't it? And by the way, I didn't swear once. Many thanks. Just blindly rules. Welcome to the Zoom of role playing rambling. We're in our virtual environment. I've got Blythe with me, Judge Blythe, the town burgermeister uh, for today. Hello there. Hello, Blythe. Dirk. And we're going to talk about uh, Dragon Warriors. And uh, you got that, you got them back in the day, didn't you? Have you got them though? I've got them here. I've got all the paperbacks. Yeah, I've got them all, all the original paperbacks. Lovingly, lovingly preserved in my small but perfectly formed museum of RPG memorabilia. Treasured possessions. You, you seem to have them covered as well with plastic I've covers. I've got plastic covers on them. Well, yes, I've I got plastic covers on them because one of the drawbacks with the format was they were paperback books. And because, as we all know, a, a rule book gets looked at a lot. And it's not the greatest format, is it? Because they do tend to fall apart, paperback books, if you uh, open and close them a lot. Because I, I liked it a lot, Dragon Warriors. I did. So you've got book six there, The Lands of Legend. I've not got that one. I've never I've had got that one. The, yeah, I've got Lands of Legend. I've got them all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, was, as they came out, yeah. That's the one that if you, you know, you wanted to retire, Blythe, and mm-hmm. you wanted to put that on the internet somewhere, somebody would pay upwards of £50. £50? I shall ring my employer forthwith and tell them to stick their job. I'm selling the lands of legend. <laughs> I know I'll be buying a yacht soon. Yeah, for some reason. For, for some reason. I think I saw it much higher than that, actually. You know, one of those... Um, I've, seen a, I've seen a stupid thing, an eBay stupid thing where... It was two thousand pounds or something, but yeah. that that's just stupid, isn't it? That's just stupid, and and hopefully the burglars, the burglars of um, the Bolton environment, don't don't listen to this podcast. Otherwise, he's got a book worth two thousand quid. It's not worth it's not worth two thousand quid, is it? It's not. No, it's not. It's, not. it's, it's not. one of those mutant algorithms, isn't it? Where I think what happens is is that they look for a, a nearby um, product. Yeah. Uh, bump up the price a little bit and it ends up going into a loop and yeah. so they end up uh, getting yeah yeah kind of goes into goes into a kind of weird overdrive where it ends up being a ridiculous price that no one in the right mind is going to pay you know but yeah. but people who've got it think oh it's worth that much it's yeah. not it's no. not it's but i think it is it is kind of much sought after though isn't it yeah. it is, does seem to be a much sought after I suppose it's because it's got the it, the bulk of it. It's the setting, isn't it? I yeah. Think. And I have to say that with, with Dragon Warriors, for me, it's predominantly the setting that stands out. The world that's presented in Dragon Warriors is the world of my imagination of living in Britain. Uh, you know, the, the world of Robin of Sherwood with light coming through the trees and... You know, those, yeah, uh, yeah, and it's got a sort of Arthurian quality to it, hasn't it? Like a mythic, mythic Britain. And as you say, it's in some ways it, it's the best bit about the game. But where, where uh, Warhammer kind of revelled in um, its warts and all depiction of uh, fantasy, mm. it's a little different here, isn't it? It is dark, but its darkness is more of a horror darkness that 
kind of gothic. It kind of depicts is a world where it's a human world. I mean, it does have does have elves and dwarves and things in, but it but it's almost like a human centric world, and the monsters are the things that go bump in the night, for want of a better explanation. The monsters are not. I don't. I don't know if you. And it's like an army of orcs would would be fitting for dragon warriors. It's more a boggart down in the marshes that's stealing people in the night. That kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that kind of monsters are kind of monsters, but they're not. They don't have their own cities, do they? It's not like no. they found a load of kobolds in a village. Yeah, and where they where they have alternative civilizations like dwarves and elves, they don't quite fit somehow, do they? They feel like a, almost an afterthought. It is a very human world, isn't it? Yeah, and there is there is actually one of my favourite paragraphs in in the books on, on that on that topic is halflings. So in the monsters section, it has halflings, and it does it does have hobgoblins and goblins and all those kind of things. It does have all those conventional monsters, but they don't they don't really fit in. in it's not quite like D and D, is it? It's not quite like that kind of thing. But one of my favourite lines in it is, um, "No halfling can ever rise above third rank." And for this reason, they are not considered as potential player character material. Now, any game that says you can't play a halfling is, for me, a winner. It's going on record now. I've never played a halfling. I like that. Yeah, don't you? No, can I play a halfling? No, you can't. Move on. Right. <laughs> one, one, one day I will get you playing a halfling cleric, riding a badger. It will happen. <laughs> Re- reading these books again. Reading these books again, I was drawn. It didn't make me think of um, fighting fantasy because that's that's why they exist, isn't it? They exist because fighting fantasy in the yeah. UK kind of carved a new genre, a new uh, publishing phenomenon, a new classification of yeah. books, and that's why it sat with them. And uh, similarly, Corgi brought out Tunnels and Trolls around the same time, didn't they? Um, it's a game system that is meant to sit alongside those fighting fantasy books and well, appeal it, it to is, those. Uh, yes, yes and no. I would say yes. I would say yes and no to that. I, I'm not I'm not sure I entirely agree. I, I agree with you that I think you can see very clearly that the marketing strategy came from fighting fantasy. So fighting fantasy is out there selling lots of copies and someone comes along with a role-playing game that someone thinks, well, I tell you what, let's market it like fighting fantasy is paperback books because these these kids that are buying fighting fantasy will see this on the shelf next to fighting fantasy and, and there'll be an overlap. And I'm sure that that did happen. But I, I'm not sure it in terms of what it is as a product, as a game, it sits alongside fighting fantasy because it is, it is a fully-fledged role-playing game. So it, yeah. is, a, it is a role-playing yeah. game that, is, is marketed and sold as paperback books, which is actually a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea because if you bundle it all together into some big core rule book, you, people, I think people, and I know lots of people do have a fondness for Dragon Warriors, but I think, listen to me, I'm a marketing strategist now. What do I know? But I think it would have been a much, much bigger hit because the problem was, and you've, you've alluded to it already, this is why I've got these, these plastic wrappers on, because... You, you know, as a rule book, it comes out in several volumes. So you get volume one, which is about warriors. And then you get volume two, which is about magic users. And then you get volume three, which is an adventure, big adventure, isn't it? And then volume four. And 
you bought them in volumes, but if you bought volume one, all you had was a was a role playing game where you could play warriors. It it doesn't it just didn't work. I don't think it I don't think it worked. The selling it like that, selling it as these paperback volumes. As I said, you know, a rule book, you look at the you know, the rule books that were knocking around at the time, hard, nice, good quality hardback rule books that were expensive, but they lasted, didn't they? Dragon Warriors rule books wouldn't lasted five minutes, really. Yeah. If you if you played it a lot, we did we didn't play it that much, but if you played it a lot, they'd be falling apart. It, it's just not. It's just the wrong. You can see why somebody decided to sell it like that, but it is not the right format. And I think it was a kind of real stumbling block to Dragon Warriors taking off. Maybe. Well, you see, I think I, I know, I, but you're more pragmatic than I am. I think there's a certain romance in the fact that they are in a paperback format. And the reason I say that is, although uh, fighting fantasy was a, a, a genre that appealed to uh, people at that time, what I think this book, these books hark back to is a time when horror paperbacks were appealing to kids at the beginning of the 80s and the end of the 70s. Because reading this, it made me recall uh, Daniel Farson's beaver book of horror and that beaver book of horror was the source of everything i know about monsters from all around the world comes from that beaver book of horror and when i read it that's the thing that i i, I thought of because you remember in the 70s like adult fiction um with horror stuff exploded and then alongside that you got a lot of like kids horror fiction didn't you like uh Alfred Hitchcock's Ghostly Gallery and all those uh, pan books that were marketed at kids' horror stuff. And I think it sits with that. When I read this, it makes me think of that. Is that because of the monster descriptions in it? Yeah. I mean, it says something about a game when it's called Dragon Warriors, but there's actually more written about the hag than there is about dragons <laughs> mm. because the way that it describes the hag and and the, the the vocabulary it uses to describe the ragged filthy cloaks and how they appear and their special abilities to kind of terrorize people it's just fantastic you know you read this and already mm. you're thinking right I would I, agree. I, I would agree. I mean, yeah, I would agree with you. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I, at the time, and, and even now I have a soft spot for it, but at the time I really liked it as a game and I can remember being really keen to play it and excited, very excited about it. Um, and I think that's why, because it was very evocative and very colourful. But I still, I, still, I still stand by the fact that it's such a shame that all those great words about all those great monsters were bundled into paperback books so that gamers maybe who were looking for a new game might might have overlooked it and i would i would say it's almost certain that some gamers would have overlooked it because of the format because of the way it was packaged and and similarly some people who bought it thinking it was fighting fantasy might have put it to one side. Not everyone, I'm sure some, for some people, and I'm sure people will, will, will tell us that it was probably the game that made the leap for them from yeah, fighting I, fantasy to proper role playing. But, but equally, I think maybe some people 
it might you, have gone the other way. You're worrying about this too much. What's come on with you? What are you, you red glasses on? What do you on? mean, worrying about? You've got your red glasses on and your bloody red braces thinking that you're some kind of contestant on The Apprentice. <laughs> That doesn't matter. The marketing strategy does not matter. The fact is, is that some people did convert into playing role Well, forgive games. me for trying to place the game in some historical context on but a what? podcast that peddles nostalgia. But <laughs> never mind. Do continue. But, so that's, that's, the, that's precisely the thing I'm saying, is that the fact that they came out as paperbacks and we're looking at them today and their paperback artifacts <laughs> gives them a great feel and a great sense in, in much in, in a much better way than some of the other uh, games that we've looked at. This, yeah, this I, th- I'm not disagreeing entirely, but I do I do think when I I think that when I produced Dragon Warriors for to play with, it looked a little bit askance at it. Like, what's this? It's a paperback box, you know, that kind of thing. I think there was a little bit of that. I'm sure you sat at home with the uh, profit margins of uh, Trans World looking <laughs> at your stocks and shares. In the meantime, I you wish. Know, <laughs> for, for, I wish, yeah. <laughs> they could be doing this rubbish if that was the case. No. <laughs> 40 years later, I've got this wonderful thing to uh, read The Grave Gaunt. These are scavenging winged undead whose origins are lost in the mist of antiquity. Hunchbacked and emaciated, they have grey-black papery skin stretched taut over a bony frame and narrow skull faces fixed in a f- fleshless rictus. My goodness, that's fantastic. What book's, what book's that from? Which that is that from, from Out of the Shadows. And I think Out, Out of the Shadows, Shadows is his best Shadows. one. Yeah. You see, what, what, that is wonderful, but I'll bet you anything you like. Some kids took that back to the shop and said, I bought this, I thought it was fighting fantasy, but it's not. Yeah. That's they, they would have spoken like that as well. That's an accurate representation of how they would have sounded. Out of the shadows, uh, out, out of the shadows is a is a really good uh, volume. I think this is my favourite yeah. one. I think it's my favourite one because its interpretation of the uh, thief class is as assassins, as though it's a secret society, and mm. you know they kind of get carried away with giving them all kinds of special. <laughs> Uh, abilities that are not available to many of the other classes but that that's the other thing isn't it as you've got the different volumes you've got more classes available to you yeah 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 no it's it's a it's a lovely game it's a good game and it has is it four four types of wizard four types yeah. of magic user which for me is great because they're always yeah. my favourite. So you've got the warlocks, haven't you? You've got sorcerers and warlock, uh, mystic and elementalist. So they yeah. go to town with the uh, the wizards, yeah, which is great. Yeah. And and again, the spell descriptions. I think it's the warlock ones, isn't it? Hellfire yeah. spell. Hellfire. Turncoat. Nemesis. So let's, uh, let's do our usual format then, because we're going to have a look at the rules and the mechanics uh, in mm. here. So uh, the way this works, we do three highlights and one low light. So let's have a look at the three highlights. What are the three highlights you're going to look at? Um, well, it's quite tricky, actually, because I don't think the system sets the world on fire. It's kind of like a, a fairly pedestrian system, but it but it works well. But when we played uh, Grog Meatish, there's a guy there who says, I've been playing this game for 20 mm. years and this is the only rule set I use. And, and I, can uh, see, I, I can see that, yeah. And uh, 
uh, Rojko. You played with uh, Rojko yeah. uh, at Krugmeet last year in Mythago Wood. And he yeah. also says, you know, it's a great flexible system, just lets you do what you want to do. And and that's kind of what I mean. It's not, to say it doesn't set the world on fire, it's not, it's not necessarily a criticism. I think it's, I played in, in Rogers' Mythago Wood game. And in that game, Although it's Mythago Wood, so it, it you know you're wandering into this fantasy wood, full of full of echoes of the past and that kind of thing. So you meet witches and ghosts and stuff like that. Um, I, it was set in the Second World War, so our characters were modern characters. So he was using dragon warriors, but they were modern characters, and it did work perfectly. It worked perfectly. And I think that's what I mean. It, the, the system. When I, it's unkind to say it's pedestrian. That's not that's not really what I mean. But it's kind of like a bare bones system that you can very easily lift out of a fantasy setting and just transplant it almost into any setting you wanted. So I can actually see why people would say it's the only system they've ever, they've used for twenty years because it is very flexible. But I suppose the price you pay with a flexible system it has a sort of ordinariness to it yeah. if, you, if you see what i mean i think that's what i'm driving at i, I don't want to it's it sounds like really critical and i don't mean it to sound critical but, but what it is it's it's a it, you read the rules and you think yeah oh, that's good yeah that makes sense yeah that makes that's perfectly logical yeah i can see that and you go yeah that that works well done it works it doesn't have whistles and bells that make it necessarily a fan. I mean, I know it's got magic and what have you, but it doesn't necessarily make it a fantasy system. It could, you could use that in any generic setting, really. And, should, and obviously, people do. We should say that the core mechanic really is a D20 rule law, isn't it? So you've got your attributes and you use them, don't you? Strength, your reflexes. Yeah, yeah. And that, that ties into the, the first rule, really, defense, because what you have is you have like an attack score could be like 12 13 something like that and then your opponent has a defense score which is is a lot lower and that's reduced off your attack so if your if your attack was i don't know 15 for sake of argument should be quite high 15 but 15 and your opponent has a defense of five then you need to roll a 10 or less to hit and that in itself again doesn't strike you as being particularly exciting but i can remember back in the day what was neat about the defense rule was that if you were attacked by multiple opponents you split your defense so you could split your defense against two opponents so if you had a defense of five you could put three on one two on the other or one on one and four on the other Uh, and monsters work in the same way they might have quite a high defense but when they're confronted with several opponents they have to split the defense down in a combat round so a monster with a defense of 12 which is very tough if they're attacked by four people have to divvy that 12 up against the four people that are attacking them yeah and it's quite a neat it's, it's quite a neat rule because that's always one of the strange things about role-playing games and certainly not so much nowadays but i always think then there's always that thing about ganging up and multiple opponents you know D yeah. never dealt with it it had just you just got more people rolling against you um and room quests sort of dealt with it but not not that well but i do think dragon warriors with its defense rule deals with it in a quite a neat and easy an easy way you know just 
right, here's your defense score. You decide what you want to do with that in this combat. Do you want to stick it all against the big bad ogre who's doing a lot of damage and let the take chances with a little goblin that's standing by his side? You want to do that? Gives you that kind of option. And when we played it, I think that became very apparent very quickly in the first combat where we were fighting a monster with a good defense and we all twigged fairly early on to batter it and try and wear it, make it use its defense points against us so that it might use its defense against someone who's a heavy hitter. But that then allowed, I think my character had a bow and someone else who did a lot of damage, the, uh, the monster used a lot of defense against him. But then that left him open to my attack and I, that, that is kind of neat, a neat little rule. I remember back in the day thinking, oh, that's, that's a nice rule. I like yeah. that. It is, it is a good rule. And because uh, I always liked defence when it applied in Moonquest uh, Second Edition, which has never survived any of the uh, iterations. It's always been lost, hasn't it? it uh, yeah. It's ne- yeah. It, they never retained it. And I always think that, I still think in terms of uh, using your defence, because it, it should be the case that, things are harder to hit than others. But as you say, what's quite good about this one is that you can divide it up. And second up is stealth and perception. Well, yeah, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have, um, a skill system. So no. really skills are dealt with by rolling under stats. So, you know, strength, dexterity, all that reflexes, all that kind of stuff, um, which is, is the old school way of doing it, isn't it? But it has two skills. It does have two, what you could say, two skills which are stealth and perception. And what I like about it is that it's very well thought out, isn't it? Because when you're playing these role-playing games, particularly back in the day, and particularly the kind of role-playing game that Dragon Warriors is, stealth and perception are the two key skills, aren't they? That's what everyone uses. No one cares about animal handling, persuasion, or all under your charisma. How many times are you going to use that in these kind of games? You know, I know people nowadays at different games where they're more important, but I think certainly back then, they just do a, do a nice job of going, well, do we need loads of skills? No. But stealth and perception are important, aren't they? They're always important. There's always going to be some sneaking around and there's always going to be some spotting, spotting traps. Yeah. All and the other skills, just forget them. <laughs> don't worry yeah. about them. You, do, you don't have a skill list and it does give you um, ways of handling skill the use of skills so using those core attributes for climbing so how you should apply your yes, reflex yes. to yeah, yeah. climbing yeah. and how you can set difficulty uh, depending yeah. on how what you're climbing and if you're uh, an assassin you get some benefits because you're all as an assassin you've got these uh, metal claws that assist your climbing but you're right there's no separate skill the only one they've got is stealth and perception because it's as you say, they're the core ones, aren't they? They're the ones that you ask for all the time, right? Give yeah. me a perception check or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't really, um, you don't, re- you don't really need any others. And there are, there are. I mean, there is magical attack and magical defense as well. I should say it's not just the physical, but that operates in a in a very similar way, doesn't it? To uh, to normal combat. Yeah, I quite like how it does that actually. There's there's a kind of logic to all of the rules, isn't there? The way that uh, combat yeah. applies, the way that magic applies. Is, I think that's why people find it so appealing because there's, a, there's like a sensibleness to it. It does a good job of giving you 
the the key things you need to run these games. You don't need some of the other bits and pieces. And it's also got a rule about evasion. It's got an evasion rule, I think, which is kind of interesting, which is sort of like a skill as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's always that always crops up, doesn't it? That's always important, yeah. you know, dodging things. Yeah, put that in. But don't put animal handling in. You don't need to worry yeah. about that. Or plumbing. We don't, you don't <laughs> plumbing. plumbing, yeah. Yeah, you don't need to worry about plumbing. Yeah. You never yeah. know when that might come in, though. So number three, you've got uh, monsters, which we've sort of mentioned before. And uh, certainly when I've uh, come back to these, it's the monsters that have just... Some of them have just made the hairs on the back of my neck uh, stand up. They're just great, the way that they're described. Yes, yeah, they are. It is very evocative, and I know it's not really a rule, but it's part of the game because you're right, it does give you a lot of background and a lot of kind of ideas within each monster description. You know, there's scenarios, isn't there? Yeah. Kind of leaping out at you, really, which is a great part of the game. I think what it does it, as you say, locates it within the history of the world that it inhabits. These things are uh, weird and unusual and rare. And when you, there's a certain folk horror about them that is uh, sometimes terrifying. The the one I really like is this one called the, the Baradath, the Baradath, Eve's Phantom. And so this is a vampiric ghost that has come from a grave of a suicide so it sends the life force it kind of goes um preying on the life force and what it actually does is torment people in their houses it never enters the house but it's mm. always there and uh when a place is haunted by it they know that it's there but you, you might never encounter it and fear it but it, it's there uh, yeah and you can you can just see an adventure of that of like an investigation of finding what's causing this. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Let's say you read the you read the descriptions and adventures sort of unfold from it almost, which is always a sign of a good game, isn't it? If you can if you can read the monster section of a game and start thinking, oh yeah, this there's an adventure here, there's an adventure there. That's always a good thing. So although it's not a rule. I think it's worth it's worthy of note that the monsters are really um, really good. One of the attacks of this uh, monster is the fright attack. So how do you feel yeah. about the fright attack? Can you remember what the fright attack was? I think I used. Remind it. me. Go on. Hang on. Let me find it. <laughs> this is a this is a trouble with these bloody books, aren't they? Why? This is all these paperbacks. See now you're coming around to my way of thinking. That is the problem, flicking through them. <laughs> Where is it? Which book's it in? Book four, book five? What you would do is you would say, hang on, I think that's in book four. Right, I look through book four. I look through book four and keep looking through book four until you realise it's in book two. I can't find it, but uh, yeah. It's not to be better. Big core book and an index, <laughs> which you can buy now. Actually. You can buy that now. You can buy that, but for some reason... It's not as it is. It not the same? It's not the same. I like no. it. I prefer it. Yeah, you, you would. That's me with yeah. your red glasses on and your braces. But me, I prefer to spend <laughs> twenty spend minutes trying to find looking in the wrong book for a rule <laughs> that isn't there. Yeah, it's in book one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, a fright attack. Essentially, I think is I, it an attack it, that frightens people? It frightens people, and it can yes. frighten you to death. That's right. I, I, I do think... remember that. I do remember that from the game because, yeah, a couple of uh, rather foolhardy 
party members ended up in a situation where they had to make a role, didn't they? Yeah, but, but you did warn them, this could frighten you to death. Seems, seems a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> they seem a bit harsh. All right. <laughs> Love it. So th- those are the three things that um, that you admire about the game. What is the thing that you, um, you think is a bit of well, a fumble? I, I think the armour bypass rule is a little bit of a... Is it a fumble or is it just a little bit ill-considered? So just explain what the... Uh, Armor bypass really. Well, the armor bypass when when you hit something um, in the game, your weapon does a fixed amount of damage. So sword might do four damage, and what basically happens is you have an armor score, might be three or four or five or whatever, and each weapon or each monster's attack has an armor bypass roll. So if you're hit with a sword, you might be wearing some chainmail or whatever, the armor arm rating of of four or something like that, and the sword, I think a sword has an armor bypass roll of a D8. So you roll a D8, and if it gets past your armor, if you get higher than the armor, then you take the damage. That's how that's how so armor doesn't absorb damage and it doesn't make you harder to hit in, in, in sort of armor class, the armor class style. But what it does do is it can essentially the, the weapon has to get past your armor. So when you hit, you have to make an armor bypass roll with your weapon. And then if you get past the armor, then you do the damage. So the damage yeah. is fixed, but the armor bypass roll is a, a dice roll. And yeah. that actually, it's not such a bad rule, and it can make combat a little bit more exciting because you can get hit and then think, oh, oh, right, there's another roll before I get walloped to the load of damage. That can be exciting. But I think one of the flaws is, and I think we encountered this in the game we, we played, didn't we, where if you're not careful, a well-armored character can become impervious to damage because I think um, particularly if you give people magic armor so if you get a plate and it's got an armor bypass roll of sort of five and then you get a monster that has an armor bypass roll of you know a d4 or something like that or even a d6 it's almost impossible to harm somebody well it is impossible unless you get a critical which yeah, is always yeah. a bypass yeah yeah and I think I think the magical armor, you know, mag- suit a magical plate can give you an armor of six or seven, and then then a lot of monsters, not all monsters, because you can get big monsters that can obviously do have quite a good armor bypass roll, but it, it, it cuts out a lot of opponents. I think that's one yeah. of the flaws in it. I think you know you can yeah, there, it's very very easy a, to be in that end up in that position. There, it definitely is that flaw. And the other thing that I found when I was playing it blindly is that I found it difficult to get into the uh, rhythm of it mm. and that it seemed that there was a lot going on, a lot of dice rolls going on and nothing happening. And, you know, with our modern sensibilities, that's it, it, it yeah. gets a bit irksome, doesn't it, that? I found myself reducing the hit points of the opponents because yeah. I knew that there was fixed damage and it just seemed to be endless uh, rolling, failing to get through, you know. So d- these days you want things to be resolved a little bit quicker than that, I think. I think you're right, yeah. That, it, that is, a, is a sort of strong influence of the past, isn't it, where yeah. people were quite happy to keep rolling dice and failing. But you're right, the armour bypass roll can Combi- slow things down. Combined with the fixed damage as well. Yeah. So armour yeah, yeah. bypass and the fixed damage together somehow... Yeah. 
make it prolongs the thing, so it just ends up being a, a, a grinding out a result, and it's just not very. It, it, not a lot of things can happen. Um, well, it, 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 yeah, you're right because, um, and maybe maybe that's yeah maybe that's the the bad rule as well, fixed damage because. I think we've we found this a little bit in Numenera that also uses fixed damage, didn't we? That yeah. the problem is if you're if you've got a monster with 12, 12 hit points and you're doing four damage, well, you know you've got to get four hits on it, haven't you? Yeah, you've you've got to get those four hit because there's three hits rather to take it down. There's no there's no two ways about it. You know, I mean, criticals aside, that's and, and that it does become a bit of a slugfest then, doesn't it? Just slugging it out with something, thinking, right, I've hit. And you as a games master are looking at the hit points and going, yeah, four damage. It's got eight hit points left. If you hit it again, you are going to do four. It's still going to be standing. I know it's still going to be standing. It does prolong it. You're right. It, yeah, it prolongs it to, to the point of tedium, maybe. <laughs> In the in the spirit of the game, I was running out of uh, metaphors and adjectives to describe to describe the, the sword blows and the, the claw tooth and claw attacks. Yeah, yeah, because that that is exactly it, isn't it? If you roll, you know, if you're rolling a d10 or a d8 damage or d8 plus one against something with twelve hit points, you think if you're lucky, you can you could take that out in two rounds, you know. But in that game, it's three. It's three lots of damage, you know. And with an armor bypass roll, you might hit it, but do no damage whatsoever because your weapon might not get through its armor. Yeah. So, yeah. But I think that is a throwback to when those things were half the course in role-playing games. Because it's true as well of the defense score, isn't it? If if someone has a good defense and throws all the defense against one opponent, that opponent has very little chance of hitting. So it's yeah. a series of failures, like just failed again, failed again failed again but that, yeah but i suppose that's that's something from that era isn't it really yeah. perhaps that's the game showing its age a little bit yeah the other thing uh, that dates it certainly sets it in this particular period is the uh, uh the scenarios the scenarios I have to say are really well written again it uses the languages uh beautiful to read the all of the encounters in the uh, elven crystals are very carefully constructed and, and it's in that area of uh, ruined castles overgrown the bramble hedge you know like rupert the bear country you know it's that kind of <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> it's not quite the countryside a mythic quality to it, it doesn't exist but you yeah, know yeah. that it's there there the hedgerow it belongs well, in the head I, I, I think that's that's why that is why Roger's game of using it for Mythago Wood was so perfect because it has those echoes within it. The game has those echoes of that kind of thing, which with Mythago Wood, the novel is very good at, at that kind of evocative English forest full of all these echoes of of history and also mythic history floating around in it. You know, yeah. and that's why it works so well, I think, because yeah. the game system just somehow draws on that yeah yeah and, and and yeah everything's everything's got like a haunted quality to it and as i say throw to uh, a throwback to uh, folk horror because it's so carefully constructed the encounters they can only really be experienced in a particular way it, as we know you know as soon as you present players with a certain setup they'll start to pull it apart and break it 
you know, as, as, a, as a games master, because it's so carefully constructed, you end up trying to, in a couple of occasions and some of those encounters, ended up quickly trying to uh, fill the gaps that weren't there because you didn't quite do it in the way that the way that it's presented was anticipating you would do it. Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. Cause it's kind of presented in a, such an evocative way, but that, that assumes a certain set of reactions from the players. Yeah. Almost like the players will play ball, but that's a I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, you know, none of those encounters are Rupert Burr. No, no, but, no, you mentioned it. I, it could, what, what was his little fella called? He would appear in here, wouldn't he? That, what was his well, little he would, t- wouldn't he? He would, yeah. That what was little twig, twig, twig fella. Twiggly, stickly, was it? Sticky, was it Stiggity or Stickity? Stiggity? Stiggity? Yeah, I don't know. I know what you mean, yeah. He used to give me nightmares as, kids, as a kid. Cause it used to be on that lunchtime, didn't it? With uh, Hammy Hamster. Rupert <laughs> the Bear in his trousers. Those trousers used to give me nightmares. Town <laughs> trousers. Rupert the Bear, the RPG. That's never come about, has it? Thank God. No, we'll keep working on it. <laughs> That's got a badger in it, hasn't it? It has, yeah. Mm, what? Yeah. So are you going to get away and uh, put these on eBay, see what you can get? Or see are you going to play see if, see, if, see if I can buy a yacht. I'll keep them. I'll keep them to me dying there, won't I? Keep them to me dying there. In one day, someone will pick them up. What's this rubbish? Someone will, someone will pick them up. And I'm long dead and gone and say, these are all right, these, but you know what? If they'd have published them as a core rule book, would have been much more, <laughs> much more marketable. You wouldn't let it lie, would you? You wouldn't, I let, wouldn't it let, lie. let it lie, no. Thanks, <laughs> Blady. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. I'll put a link to Dave Morris's Patreon so you can help develop how Dual Spider looks and to follow the progress of the project. Dragon Warriors is available on Drive Through RPG from Serpent King Games. The books have been reorganised into a core book with supplements such as the Bestry and additional campaign books. There's still an active and supportive community playing Dragon Warriors. There's a lively and accessible fanzine, Casket of Phase, which is also available from Drive Through RPG. The site the cobwebbed forest brings together the material in one place as well as publishing essays about the game thanks to dave patterson for his contribution keep him peeled for his new podcast frankenstein's rpg he also appears regularly on all anthrexes gaming vexes i'll make sure i put links in the show notes i've had feedback from mike kuehl that i'm not very astiduous at that so i'll make sure that it's there for you mike you can keep up to date with the latest projects and recommendations by joining our Patreon. We issue a monthly webzine at the start of the month. Thank you for all our patrons and for anyone who's liked or subscribed over the past month or so. It means a lot. This is the last grog pod of 2020. So if you're listening to this when the episode goes out, all the very best to you and yours. The next episode will be a review of 2020. Dave Morris returns to face the Games Master screen to talk some more about White Dwarf and other projects. We will be giving out the groggies after a fallow year, so make sure you tune in to find out who will be awarded the GM's Award, the Messianic Megalomaniac, 
or the Olive Kinsberg Players, Players, Playing and Playing Award, or the Sharon Osbourne Award, or the Captain Birdseye Award. And these and many others will be dished out when we roll out the red carpet next time. Until then, let hands be shook and champagne poured. Adios, amigos. This is the Watson Industry.